Christian community often forms around the reading of texts. Church culture in almost every Christian denomination includes Bible studies and book studies, with the best diving deep into literature both sacred and secular as a means of exploring the human experience. This is Logos-ish. Today we talk to Reverend Dr. Mary Shore about using literature to explore our spiritual lives. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. This is John. We have another great episode planned for you today. I am joined by my wonderful, spectacular, effervescent co-hosts, Garrett and Brian. Brian, you haven't been on with us in a while. How are you doing today? How, How bubbly are you feeling? You know, somewhere in between, uh, I don't know, a bubbly water and flavored water at that, and maybe a Sprite, like, but not fully to like Coca-Cola. Okay. Definitely wow. not champagne. I, I just wouldn't ever associate myself with champagne, mostly because it's not my preferred wine type, but there you go. Brian, you're always a celebration. So oh, y- lean yes, into your champagne-ness. I would suppose. Well, I guess I would be, I'm feeling like a Coke, you know, like you have the little bite in the back of your throat. So, you know, I'm here, I'm present, conscious and and awake more so than I've been. So (laughs) been tiring the past couple weeks with baby things. Come on, you really haven't done anything of note, Garrett. You're not doing any of the hard work. No. It's really hard to be the face of this podcast that you only have uh, on audio. <laughs> Takes a lot of work. Well, while Garrett tries to work out how he can be the face of a podcast on audio, I would like to introduce our guest today. Our guest is the Reverend Dr. Mary Hinkle Shore, rec- rector and dean of Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary. I am always proud every time I get through saying all of those types of words in order. Mary, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I had not thought about champagne as one end of the scale of bubbly, and I like it a lot. So I'm kind of stuck back on those bubbles, all exiting a a tall flute. Feeling good. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Yeah, the, the champagne thing for me, I was thinking about when you bottle things and you're looking at bottle strength, champagne tends to go into some of the highest strength glass bottles. And so clearly that must be the bubbliest then. I have no idea if that's true. Don't quote me on that. We might want to fact check this later. Fact checker, Brian, hint, hint. You can check. I'll Are you look gonna it Google up. It I'll, right look, I'll, I'll Google <laughs> All it. Right. Well, while Brian is Googling that, Mary, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I was raised in a Lutheran tradition. So baptized as an infant and kind of a churchy kid in a family in the Midwest. So in Ohio. And when I was, gosh, maybe 15 years old. So we're talking about 1977 or so. A United Methodist Church in a little town in the Southern Ohio area, Central Ohio area where I grew up, called a female pastor. And I had never heard of such a thing. And my best friend went to that church. So I heard about their woman pastor. And I asked my pastor of the Lutheran church if women could be ordained in the Lutheran church. And he said, yes. It turned out it had not been very many years. It was 1972 when my particular type of Lutheran church started ordaining women. And so this was five years later. At that point, and really after that, pretty much without much interruption, I started feeling kind of drawn to that work. So I went to college. I was a political science major because I knew that I didn't want to be a teacher and I worried and I didn't want to be a doctor. And so I thought I could be a lawyer, but I didn't like it. And my political science professor said, well, you know, you got to get two religion courses. Let's just get one of those out of the way the first semester. And that was where my heart was. So I, I ended up reading Christian existentialism, Paul Tillich and Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy and Douglas John Hall was writing at that point, uh, Light in Our Darkness, which was an important book for me. Uh, That's how I sort of grew up into the religion thing that I do. And from there, I went to seminary right away to Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, and 
thought maybe graduate school, uh, I had a good internship in ministry and then became a parish pastor in three little churches on the prairie in, in Eastern North Dakota. So the best, most 65 mile circuit on Sunday, I was 24 years old when this, when I was ordained because I dashed through high school and college. And so I was paying high car insurance and driving my 65 miles on Sunday morning, just in the circuit of three little churches and kind of hyper responsible. I'm, I still feel some, what would you say? I'm not bitter about the high car insurance, but it was uh, completely unnecessary for, for this young person. I'm doing funerals, you know, trying not to mix my metaphors in a prayer and looking up to see that people were crying and processing, oh, uh, something's bigger here than just my capacity to pray extemporaneously, you know? And, and that was, those folks taught me how to be a pastor. I drove 32 miles for groceries because they're, you know, I mean, that was just the way the town had 300 people in it, very isolated experience. I was single. And so all the ways that that you can imagine that was hard personally and socially, it was hard. It was also really good. I moved from there into a larger congregation in the metropolitan place known as Fargo, North Dakota, and uh, was a pastor on a staff of uh, four clergy and a bunch of uh, lay professionals, and did that for a short time, uh, just a couple of years, and then went to Duke for graduate study. I think when I, if I had gone to graduate school right out of seminary, so if I had gone from an MDiv to a PhD without time in the parish, I would have gone to graduate school in systematic theology, but I had th three years on my own preaching every week on the lectionary and I got really interested. And then of course the next uh, three years, you preach the same texts. Again, I got really interested in how a text means new things in a new context. You, you don't run out of material, right? The, they reward re-readings. And I was really interested in how that worked and why it happened and beyond just the simplest explanation that the spirit continues to inspire scripture, just as the spirit inspired its writing. So also it inspires its reading. So I went to Duke to study with a man who had written on the use of the Old Testament in the New, Richard Hayes. And that was my work. And my life's work has really been looking at old texts in new contexts. So whether that's the Old Testament in the new or uh, scripture in the pulpit or a class that you've taught 12 times, like the Gospel of Matthew, being a new class when you teach it in a new year, that's the way I understand what I do. I sometimes joke that the only spiritual gift I have is seeing things in scripture. There isn't a lot of other stuff that I do that surprises me or that feels like something that I might not be in control of, but things just occur to me when I read texts. So I took all of that and I taught for 16 years at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. And then I took a call, parish call again. I wanted to kind of, I wanted to be a, a grown-up parish pastor, somebody over 30 doing parish ministry. And I served for six years in Western North Carolina in one ELCA, Lutheran congregation. And from that, it made sense to end up in South Carolina at the seminary that the ELCA sponsors owns in the Southeast. So uh, this school that I work at now is connected to the whole church, but mostly connected to the church in the Southeastern United States. And I had been an associate dean and a overseen Master of Divinity and Master of Arts programs at Luther Seminary and administration. So I had experience there. And it's a longer story and not a particularly interesting one, I think, how I got here. But when I left Luther, I'll say this much. When I left Luther, I thought I hung up my academic garb, which you wear, you know, at the opening convocation of a university or a seminary or college in the fall for all the students to be impressed. And then you wear it in, the, in graduation. And I hung up those clothes and I thought, well, that's the end of that. And that was a nice run. And I'll finish out my vocation back where I started it in a parish. And it turns out six years after uh, leaving the academy, I came back into it and I didn't see it coming. And I'm grateful every day because it just, this is a wonderful combination of, of getting to hang out with really smart people and worship 
regularly in a community here and dream about what the what the church and what the world need out of a theological seminary for the next generation. Well, we hear really good things and several folks have mentioned that we should talk to you at some point. So it was really great that we got to set this up. I will say, as you were introducing yourself, you touched on one of my great anxieties, which is how do I not run out of material? Because one of the things that does get mentioned to me occasionally is is people who mention that they feel like their pastors have gotten lazy and over over 20 years in the parish, they have eventually started recycling sermons and oh. they noticed. And then all of a sudden, you know, the person in question who used to attend regularly every Sunday is now finding themselves at the zoo on Sunday morning instead because it feels like a holier place to them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really fond of my front porch with a cup of coffee. I have to say, <laughs> if not the zoo, you know, yeah, I'm, I'd be interested in, in what you all do. So you don't run out of material too. Some of it for me is prayer by which I mean uh, something like Lexio Divina or some people say Lectio Divina, it's a kind of reading of scripture or another holy text slowly and carefully for a word that is for you in that reading. And then the way I practice it, I ask what my prayer is, what prayer is rising within me around that reading. And then I've been taught to ask what prayer is God praying for you from this reading? And that that third question always results in some something. I was working last week with a couple of verses from 1 John with a group of people. It's 1 John 3. I'm not going to quote it precisely, but it's something like, um, see what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And what we shall be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when he is revealed, uh, we will be like him, speaking about Christ. But when I went through that process of thinking, Oh, what's your prayer? My prayer was pretty mundane. Help me see certain people as a child of God. Like if you're in the parish, help me see the guy who comes in and turns down the thermostat because, you know, it's too, we're heating that building too much in the winter or we're cooling it too much, you know, has to mess with the thermostat because he cares about money. And clearly you don't care as much as he does. Help me see Fred as a child of God. And then I got to what is God's prayer for me. And what came to me was God saying, I will see him as my child when you can't. So I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And that actually, you know, a person could work that into a sermon. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Like, that's like material. Oh, uh, oh you definitely yeah. could. That, that's a great sermon. <laughs> like, <laughs> so yeah, so I don't know, prayer is part of it. Uh, noticing your world. Some people say, you know, read the newspaper. I get really impatient with sermons that you feel like, oh, we're four minutes in and now we're going to hear about, you know, something someone read in the New York Times. Like that, that's a, just a little too predictable for me. But often, you know, there is something you, you really feel like you must. It's your job as a preacher to uh, bring the word in direct communion with the world in front of your congregation. And I, I can see that. I mean, just on that topic. Uh, so I'm a serious preacher, dangerous, dangerous oh, thing. Um, and, and I'm aware of that. And so I very intentionally use the lectionary in seasons in which like the church needs to be addressing like particular subject matters and things like that. But I'm also very intentional in saying like in Lent, the congregations where I served, like we always do a series on an entire gospel during Lent, but that's partnered with their small group study material that I also help mm -hmm. them to prepare and things like that. So we're engaging with broader text. And I'm also a fan of like preaching through a book, uh, a book of the, of the Bible yep. at a time so that there's not that, not always that danger of, you know, you're only picking what you're picking. Kind of right, right, right. The danger in series preaching is it can become whatever B is in the bonnet of the preacher, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. One of my teachers used to say you should never preach about love when you've just had a fight with your counsel. <laughs> it's probably good advice. Yeah, I love the idea of immersion. I mean, that's what occurs to me when you say there's a sermon series and there's a Bible study series and 
uh, in a variety of ways, these texts are, you're keeping company with texts. They follow you around, if you will, during the week. I think that allows God to do things with scripture. It allows scripture to do things to the, to the reader because they're, they're showing up when you're cooking dinner or they're showing up when you're talking to your neighbor and whether you give voice to, to how it makes a difference, you're bumping into the text throughout the week. I feel like I should be taking notes on this because my process is eventually sometime during the week, I have a moment of inspiration and that I write something down and then I say it on Sunday morning. <laughs> and and this, I recall, is being very dissatisfying to my ordination board, but somehow that that seems to have been the constant that I've experienced. But, you know, one of the things I'd like to do as we continue this conversation is turn towards talking about where we find theology and God in popular culture. Because Mary, not you, Mary, sorry, the cat Mary is, is talking directly into my microphone. You guys can't see her on the screen. <laughs> but um, sorry, <laughs> Mary, you just taught a course on seeing theology in various kinds of things, literature and popular culture. And it feels like this has direct bearing both on our, our religious practices as, as pastors and as people in church pews or just people who are spiritually seeking. And I feel like that makes a big difference in, in a lot of different areas in our lives. So can you talk a little bit about that experience while I try to chase my cat out of the room? Sure. I, I have to say first, though, that I've never met a cat named Mary. And so I, I think that's that's an extremely cool name. That was my grandmother's name, which is how I got it. So, so her, her name is Mary Magdalene. <laughs> I love it. I love it. She may have a namesake in, in coming years. Yeah, I, I have taught faith and fiction multiple times, uh, only once here at LTSS before the courses were all at Luther Seminary. I'm interested in teaching fiction because it's, it offers a way into theological questions that's by sort of a side door. Emily Dickinson talks about telling the truth, but telling it slant. And there's this kind of slant approach that happens when you're reading about other people's lives. So I would ask, these were not like Christian fiction books or anything. These are uh, literary fiction pieces for the most part. And we'd ask questions about what matters most to these characters, right? What does someone fear, love, and trust here? And then what does that say about their, you know, the ground of their being or the ultimate goal and purpose of their lives? And and how are they interacting with one another? And who is showing them a different way? One might even say uh, a new heaven and a new earth. You know, who is who is demonstrating that for a for a character, and who is is offering uh, something really far less than that? So those are those are kinds of religious questions you can bring to any story. Tell me more about what I could say. I'm, I don't want to just yammer here. I could speak about the incarnational nature of Christianity. You know, we people work out their ultimate purpose and their belovedness and their meaning in their daily lives. And that's what novels give you a window on. And so we read Toni Morrison's Home, for instance, which is the story of uh, people in the 1950s, one particular Korean War vet who's making his way back to Georgia to basically save the life of his sister. It's about a lot of other things. They're an African-American family. There's a lot about race relations. There's a lot about care for the neighbor or lack of it. There's a lot about the sanctity of life and the way that it's cheapened by people who, you know, in 1955 don't think Black Lives Matter, dead or alive. All that stuff is in the novel. And so the novel helps us engage in conversations about what it means to love God and love the neighbor in that setting or in our own. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about those questions that you mentioned a second ago? Some of them sound, speaking of theological existentialists, some of those certainly sound like they're in that ballpark, but um, you know, they, they feel both intuitive to me and, and also new in the way that we're framing our conversation about both the literature and about 
faith conversations more generally. You know, a lot of times you'll hear people ask questions, uh, you, you know, something like, where do you see God in your life? Or, or yeah, even a, a simpler, like, what do you, what do you need to pray for this week? Like what's heavy on your mind or your heart? And, and you wind up, I think, kind of going inward in a little bit in a way that can sometimes be very healthy, but also sometimes can be very distracting, especially if you're trying to free yourself from certain habits of thought. So I'm, I'm curious about where those questions came from and how you have experienced people responding as they've read the various literature that you've been teaching about. One of the struggles in the class was that we're all used to this sort of book club discussion about what I liked about this book, or I didn't like it when it didn't have a happy ending. Somebody died in one of our books. Lots of people died in the books. But at one point, a student said, why couldn't this guy just have lived? You know, like that's a different question than what do you fear, love and trust? What does this character fear, love and trust? Or uh, where is their ultimate concern? And you're right. Uh, some of those are I've stolen from somebody like Paul Tillich, who's I don't suppose anybody reads anymore, but in the in the 20th century, he was important as a theologian. The question about what do you fear, love, and trust above all things, or what some other way of putting that, comes from Luther's small catechism. And Luther explained, Martin Luther explained the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods by saying that it meant we should fear, love, and trust God above all things. So sometimes when one finds oneself fearing uh, money or the lack of it, or trusting the 401k, or uh, loving the relative autonomy that money brings, or hating the indentured nature of uh, life without enough, uh, one might be close to a theological conversation and not know it. So uh, that's where some of those questions come from. And I find them way more interesting. I, I find that they result in more interesting conversations about literature and about faith than where do you see God in this story? Or who is the Christ figure in this story? I'm okay with those questions, but I really want people, I want my students to be listening in a slightly different way to people so that people who don't have language or for whom it's annoying, the language of God and what you need to be praying for, they can still be part of your life and engage in, in conversation, even if that religious language isn't for them. Yeah, I feel like in particular that, that what really matters to this person question is a very powerful one and is one that I ask in various ways on a personal level quite a bit. I don't know if I've ever asked it of, of the things that I'm reading, and I kind of feel like I should have. But as a way of discovering something new and leaning into a, a new kind of conversation that, that feels like a very valuable question. So, so how do your students and how do you go about answering that question when you're reading something? Like what, what are the cues that you're looking for and what eventually does become of that theological conversation that you feel like you're that you're having, but you don't know that you're having. That's an interesting way of phrasing it. Like, like at what point does it shift from knowing you're having a conversation about theology to, or sorry, not knowing that you're having a conversation about theology to knowing that you're having a conversation about theology and making it intentional? Yeah. As we've been talking, I've been thinking about, do I have like simple ways of articulating the faith? Uh, Christianity is about loving God and loving neighbor. I mean, so is Reformed Judaism. We don't have a corner on the market of, of seeking to love God and love neighbor or, or enjoying, glorifying God and enjoying God forever or something like that. That's a reference to the Westminster Catechism and the, the chief purpose of the human being. So, so somewhere in the conversation, I can tell you that I start all these conversations from the perspective that every human being is deeply beloved of God as curious and difficult as that is to imagine with at any given time for all of us, but often for, for characters in fiction, deeply beloved. So how is that belovedness manifest in the world? How, how is God letting that person know? And what difference does that belovedness make? And in my own life, the difference it makes is uh, that it gives me courage that I can say, no matter what, 
someone else thinks of me, I know that I'm beloved. And so I don't have to play to the crowd in quite the same way that I think I would if I was always trying to get an A, uh, just to name but one. <laughs> Very uh, died in the whole way of being in the world for me. So, you know, one can ask that about anybody. What, how is God showing you your belovedness? How do you see it? How does someone else reflect it to you? How do you reflect that to your child or your friend or your partner? And then go from there. I th- and I suppose I name the name, right? Jesus talks about, I don't call you servants any longer, but friends, or God will say, uh, you are my child. You are my son to Jesus. Uh, With you, I'm well pleased. I'm going to get to the New Testament pretty quickly when I start to have a theological conversation, just because that's my book. Or as a friend said to me, that midrash at the back of the Bible is what you spend your time with. That's my little collection of readings that shapes my imagination. So I'll go to scripture but I suppose different people will do different things to, to move from a what seems like not a theological conversation into one. And so, like, as we're thinking through this, uh, you know, I'm just playing through this in my own mind that so many people, at least in my experience, in like parishes, like have never received like permission to use theological imagination. Like they, they haven't been taught to reflect that way. And so they might love engaging with stories, whether it's in literature or in film or, you know, in other aspects of their lives. And they don't see those Christian theological connections in the stories that they already love. And so I think the challenge is for us as like parish pastors, because John and Garrett and I and Sarah are all parish pastors at this point uh, in our lives, like part of our challenge is to help lay people to see that. And so like I'm, I'm in a series right now that's kind of really feeding into this kind of conversation. And it's not on like grand topics in literature. It's on where is the gospel in the Disney films that kids watch on Disney plus like, and because it's accessible to children, which children are a huge part of my congregation's story. So that's really important, but it's teaching both children and parents and maybe even grandparents about how to engage in stories that you already know. Right. And where is Jesus and the and the gospel or our understanding of the gospel in those stories? Because it's closer to the heart of the story than they ever thought. Uh, yes, that's a better answer than I gave, Brian. <laughs> that's a great answer. I don't, I don't think it's a better answer. It's just a, it has to do with the power of story. And I, I picked up a book several years ago, and maybe we need to add it to the list of books, John. It's called Growing Young, and it was produced by three authors who I cannot remember their names from Fuller Seminary. One of the tenets in the book was that all young people, when I was doing youth ministry, are engaged with stories of identity and belonging and purpose. Yeah, that's the book. And I am holding up Growing Young. I found it on my shelf. Kara Powell, Jake Mulder, and Brad Griffin. Yeah. And if all people have been young people at some point, then all people relate to stories about identity, belonging, and purpose. Well, those are also issues that the gospel addresses like very clearly. Who are we in Christ? Where do we belong as a part of our and find belonging within the church? And what is the purpose that God has for our lives? Like those are topics that we cover in sermons every week and we will for the rest of our lives. So it's been a fruitful, like, right. I'm sure to, to work with Disney. I I I realize I have to watch like frozen two or something. Like everyone has been telling me the theological themes in the frozen movies, but you're right. And it's not just good versus evil, which uh, it, which is, I don't know how y'all feel about star Wars, but, but some or Harry Potter, but sometimes I think we think that popular culture can only be theological in that good versus evil way. My experience of the faith is that there's certainly good versus evil going on, but it's a way more complicated equation than mm-hmm. getting rid of Voldemort. And that was I, complicated. I, it took it took them a while <laughs> to do that one. It did. Approximately it did, 700 I, and some odd pages. Yeah. I so wanted, you know, when there was the blood thing happening, like, and yeah, Mm -hmm. Voldemort gets the blood mixed up. I thought, what if it works the other way? If Harry's blood sanctifies Voldemort, like I would have written the book that way and, and it didn't get written that way. So 
you know, that could have been a really interesting, complicated, different story. And it didn't happen, at least for those characters. There is something about Jesus suffering in such a way that the rest of us get his holiness instead of sort of what's coming to us. But be that as it may, yeah, identity, you said identity, belonging, and purpose as categories that God has an interest in, in your life. And not only an interest, but like joy. I really do appreciate what I've heard so far and sort of touching on the theological imagination part, just wading into the author's expression of like the world around them and what they're trying to communicate out. Because I always feel like we're trying to connect and I always connect most broadly with literature. We're actually doing that and sort of wading into the the gray area of empathy and villains, you know, villains. And I'm working with one of our interns from Duke Divinity here, and we're going to actually do a study on that where we're going to do clips and work on finding empathy for these villains that we see in the films. And it's much more complicated, as you you all have stated, than good and evil, because sometimes you can understand where the villain is coming from. And all of a sudden, all your categories have to change with this new idea and using that as the base of, okay, if this fictional reality isn't black and white, what does that mean for our lives, our everyday lives that are definitely more so gray than the sheer black and white of things. So I really do appreciate your insights with your conversations. Garrett, you made me think of the political divide that's in most of our churches and throughout our country that on some level, we all give lip service to the fact that we're all children of God or we're all, we all belong in this church together. And then it's really hard to belong to each other across differences. Like when you find yourself saying to somebody, no, I understand what you believe. I just don't understand how you can believe it about an election and whether it was fair and free and, or any number of other things and how to stay in relationship and feel like you have integrity in your own self, but that that relationship somehow matters more than things you disagree about. I, I think that's the hardest work we're doing right now. And so maybe literature can help us because we can see somebody on the page managing some of that, loving a family member mm-hmm. who is always going to cancel you out at the ballot box, that kind of thing. It's, it's really striking me how much reading is something that slows me down. And, and so much of spirituality and the religious experience is worked around slowing ourselves down. I, I had a fellow at one point who walked up to me and, and said, you know, church is my quiet place. And I really appreciate what you're doing here, which made me feel like I am the most boring person in the world when it comes to preaching. Uh, but but his point was, you know, I'm not here to be entertained. I'm here to slow down and have that quiet centering space because there's plenty of other entertainment in the world out there. And, you know, this needs to be different from that is essentially what he was saying. But it, it strikes me how much of this conversation is also about having a space and a place set aside where we have the chance for repetition and we have the chance to fill in extraneous detail that we don't already have on our own and where we have the chance to take the time instead of just kind of breezing through things. You know, this, this is why I take novels to me when we're going to the beach and I'm going to be sitting on the beach for a while and, and, and being very, very slow as opposed to taking my phone outside and sitting and watching something on Netflix or something like that. The internet connection may have something to do with that too, but I'm going to try to take the high road in this circumstance. <laughs> you framed that really well about how you vacation, but I agree with you that it's about how we slow down and that there's a something about that because so much of our world is constantly trying to get us to do something faster or more efficiently and there's that constant demand of trying to do things ever more quickly and that is eventually like there's a limit to that and sometimes I think like kind of this spiritual movement that we're a part of 
needs to resist that temptation, right? We need to be taking that Sabbath when the world says that that's ridiculous and not an efficient use of our time. Or in our congregations that say worship is an hour every week. The thing is, is, is I'm also going back to the another question that arose for me earlier when we were talking about the, the questions in the class, which is after you think I should be asking the question, you know, what matters most to this person or this this sort of character in a piece of literature. After you think I should be asking that question, then my immediate follow-up was, when would I ask that question? And without having the chance to slow down and think, if you're just kind of breezing right through something, that's a lost opportunity, right? John, do you find yourself asking that sort of question, though, when you're visiting with parishioners? When they're telling you about whatever they're telling you, what matters most to this person? Yeah, I think I think that is a setting where it tends to happen a lot, especially, and it, it's the CPE training and stuff like that kicking in. You know, it's a character question rather than a plot question. And I think we're often, when we're in entertainment or stories of any kind, I anyway feel often that I'm plot driven. Like I want to know where where is this going? Not so much who is this person either of them can be theologically you know answered but yeah that's just my off the cuff thinking about why do we not say what matters most to this individual in this story or what matters most about this relationship that the author has just drawn for us i pulled another book off my shelf called slow church i don't know if you all know this book and it's been a while since i read it but I like the idea of the taking the slow food movement and applying it to church. Especially, I liked it when I was in parish ministry in the 2013 to 19. And everybody thought that very quickly we needed to grow the church because the main line in America is shrinking. And so go, 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 grow the church. And it, it felt very freeing to me to think what? Maybe we could just be the church with our worship and our care for one another and our interest in our neighbor beyond the walls and let the growing go. <laughs> I, I feel like I felt like lightning was going to strike me as I said that. I don't have I don't know if that's possible, but it feels to me like that might be part of the calling of the church right now is to to be church for one another and the world to be a place where you belong and where you get to work out what it means to be deeply loved as part of your identity and turn toward the world with the courage that that gives you and be freed from the need to, in my case, raise enrollment or in y'all's case, you know, grow the Sunday school or whatever the thing is that people have decided lets us know we're successful. I really appreciate that insight. It reminds me of what you said of how you're plot driven versus character driven. And I find myself the opposite only because oh. my go-to literature is poetry mostly. Hmm. Um, so it's often there's not, there's, you just have the character or the speaker, you have the voice. And so you have no choice, but to kind of do that deep dive. And so like the, the individual and the relationships that sprout from there have always been the more interesting thing for me because I can go and like read a novel, but I'm like, what about that one person there in the corner? Like, what have they been doing? Why do they keep cropping up? And I think that's important for the church and the point that you just made. Sometimes we have to forget about like our grand ambitions, right? Growing for the numbers or for the sake of the main line or whatever idyllic idea has popped up or something else and take take a look at what Jesus really did. He sat with people and had lunches and yeah. dinners with them and got to know them. He did the deep dive with the individual. And if it weren't for the gospel writers to kind of keep us moving through the story, it would have been a lot of dinner dates, which could have been boring to read. But I'm I wonder what those conversations were, what Jesus discovered in those other people's lives that were important or that scared them or motivated them or demotivated them, what their hopes and ambitions were. The sort of slow relational approach is very much sort of what I like to do through fresh expressions and connecting with people relationally outside of the church based on 
things that are of common interest or common concern. I often got get in trouble. They're like, what do you mean? Our goal is not to bring people in to the pews on Sunday. <laughs> like, because most people are not going to come in anyway. <laughs> yeah. Like who said that was the purpose? I mean, it has been for a long time. It's been the way that we can tell that we're successful. Maybe we can come up with some new metrics for people having been reached or lives having been transformed. I'm all for the transformation of lives. I wish we could talk about it in ways that we could unbundle a little bit from the annual budget, the giving units. Maybe you all don't deal with this. I, I felt, I feel oh, like I was kind of, uh, that, that I was kind of the thing. I hate the term giving unit so much. <laughs> I know, like I did it on purpose. It's got to be the most horrible way that the church ever talks about its own people. Brian, it's like, not about the people, with... it's about the dollars. Yeah. <laughs> I would say butts and seats or, or, or butts and pews is kind of right up there. Yeah, with bad ways of talking about things. I'm the first person to say that how we measure things is incredibly important and that your congregation, if you're a pastor listening, like your congregation should be measuring and should be like evaluating whether or not their ministries are successful. You're not going to be successful if you don't, but that's not the only thing you have to do. And those metrics are not the only thing that matter. And so like, I mean... It's just one of those things that there's so much on every clergy person's plate that you have those pressures and concerns, but really the work we're trying to do is deeper. And so I'm just kind of naturally curious about how do you, you as someone who's a part of theological education, where do you feel like we're going in terms of how do we shape like future clergy? I'm so glad you asked. I am speaking now about forming and this is not original with me, I stole it uh, largely from Willie James Jennings in a book he has written called After Whiteness. But we're speaking at LTSS of forming leaders who form community, right? They can form community across difference. So our mission statement says that we teach, form, and nurture women and men for Christian ministry in a context that is Christ-centered, faithfully Lutheran and ecumenically committed. We form these leaders then who can form communities across difference. And how do you do that? You have a sense of your own belonging to God and a sense of that that is true for the other as well, especially the complicated other, right? The, 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 the other who, with whom you don't understand or with whom you don't agree. And so community in Christ is formed with those others here in a seminary setting. And then while we're doing that, we're teaching people to take that with them. I think that's our work. And so someone whom you know, whom you all know from the podcast, uh, Dr. Brent Driggers talks about teaching New Testament interpretation as a series of steps to get to the text's meaning then or now, but as an occasion for building community in his class. How would a class on New Testament exegesis be different if you thought this is part of the way we're forming leaders who form community? It seems to me it's a really different undertaking then. It's not that I sit with my Bible and my resources and I go through eight steps and I give the professor a paper, but it's that we become something like a reading community. So in a New Testament class, which is not a practical theology class, right? We don't, we don't, want, it to, we don't want it to be relevant. <laughs> it's the Bible. In a New Testament class, you're actually forming community, practicing that work. And then people who graduate with that kind of formation can carry that out into the world. That's one example of a different way of looking at theological it, education. It is a powerful example because the only community our New Testament class offered was a communal hatred of how the course was laid out. Actually, the Corinthians uh, loved that common enemy thing. I mean, they did that to Paul in 2 Corinthians. So yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a biblical precedent for having one thing that you hate and having it draw you together. Brian has some very strong feelings about that time in our lives. I, I will say, having sat through Dr. Dricker's courses, that is a, a perfect description. And I think one of his favorite comments that he's gotten, he had a student visiting one day for his John course and the, the prospective student got up and said, 
that was just like a Bible study in the best way possible. And, you know, it was because we were all sitting around the table, just kind of talking. Several of us were drinking coffee. I routinely walked in with breakfast and and people would ask, you know, where did you get that? And I would give them the same answer every day. But, you know, it it was a collegial atmosphere. We would sit there and we, you know, knew we could say possibly, you know, difficult and challenging things to each other because we knew we had that bond and that community. And I think that made a difference in how we were able to experience the reading and the unpacking of texts and how we might then incorporate them into our lived lives. That's a great endorsement. (laughs) <laughs> just don't let him hear this. I, I know it's going to be. Yeah, I know. Like, what are the odds? Right. But it could be that he'll listen and then he'll get, you know, no, he, he would, he's not sure it happens. So I kind of want to let him listen to it because we all worry that what we're doing is just getting to the midterm, you know, or getting to the final or whatever it is. And we don't see in our own work often the kind of formation that students recognize after some time, some distance. I say this very mm-hmm. earnestly, that man changed the way I write and for the better. And I think he stresses a lot of people out related to that. And that may be what he's picking up on, though he, mm-hmm. I think, owns it and knows about it. Anyways, off track a little bit. I was curious, there's one last question I want to ask you before we get to our closing. And it was a note that I just kind of glossed over. We were looking at the syllabus for one of your literature courses. And and in it, you have a note about theology being a constructed thing, something that has been built. And, And can you talk a little bit about that as we close? Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by theology being constructed, you know, as opposed to being, I guess, handed down from on high? Yeah, like revealed or the tradition that is handed on. I didn't mean it as over against those things, though, uh, now that you ask me, I suppose I believe that in something like what one of the people in the crowd in the life of Brian said about Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, he's making it up as he goes along. Theology is kind of like that. We experience daily life. We try to make sense of it. A lot of things come into that making sense of daily life, making meaning and identifying belonging and purpose. And for me, scripture informs the imagination I bring to that work, but so also do the experiences I have or that I see other people having. When I wrote it in my syllabus, I meant to say daily life is the place where God encounters us and where we make sense of that encounter. A lot of people are much more mystical than I am, or they just are wired in a way that they connect spiritually. I think of my colleague, Melanie Dobson, for instance, and I want to be like her, but but I'm much more concrete in many ways. And so I wanted my students not to dismiss the concrete daily experience of themselves, their parishioners, the people they're encountering in popular culture or fiction, not to dismiss those and try to get somewhere else to do their theology, to the library, to the labyrinth, (laughs) to the, the retreat, Those are all great places also to do theology, but the fact that Jesus is the word made flesh means to me that in our daily lives, we are receiving revelation and making sense of it. I'm not sure if I helped when I answered that question. I feel like Karl Barth is somewhere in the ether saying, what are you talking about? Theology is from above, not from below. There's something in me that thinks that's a false dichotomy nowadays, that Theology is God coming toward you. I mean, you make your theology out of God coming toward you, however God will do that. And if God can show up in a manger or around, they didn't have tables, but around a meal in Nazareth and Galilee in the first century, then God can show up in the absolutely the most mundane experiences of our lives and does like promises to to show up in those. Yeah, part of the reason why I asked that question was because we just had Sarah Ritchie on and she's at, I'm totally blanking on it now, Oxford, Cambridge, Oxford, Edinburgh. No, it's Edinburgh. Edinburgh. She's in Scotland. I got there. I got there. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you know, she was talking about belief formation. And you know, one of the things that we discussed in that is is plasticity and the sort of constructive processes that people go through. And more and more, you know, you see people talking about deconstructing their religious experiences and then thinking about all of it as as being a constructive process is just something that again is something that I'm playing around with at the moment. So I, I flagged the term and I was like, let's talk about it. Right. In a book called Missionaries that we read, it's a novel that's just been published. There's a little kid who, in the voice of the little kid in Colombia, whose village is destroyed by the paramilitaries, this little kid loses his priest, his teachers, his parents, his sisters. His, he and his father happen to be away when the burning of the village happens and his father hides him in a boat, puts a tarp over him and he survives. But he says that he imagines that Abelito, little Abel, dies that night because the way he knows who he is is that everyone who loves him holds up a mirror. Like he sees himself through their eyes and then he knows he, he is. And all those people are gone. So he has no, you know what I mean? Like that's an image of of identity as constructed, as communally constructed. And that's part of what I mean when I say theology is communally constructed out of daily life. God reveals God's self in the ways that others reflect us to ourselves and reflect God to us. And, And I think an important part of that too is that because theology is communally constructed, that theology could be not actually reflecting like who God really is, but reflect more of our communal beliefs and habits and prejudices and things that may or may not be clearly uh, true. There might be reasons (laughs) for differences that might not be true, or they might show why people from different theological traditions hold very different understandings about who God is and what God wants for people's lives and how God desires to be in relationship with us, like different theological beliefs all over the place. So it might be because we have formed theology that way, whether we recognize it or not. Right. I mean, my doctrine of sin, Lutherans have this really robust doctrine of sin. You know, we think that we're always uh, individuals and corporately justified and well, individuals justified and sinners at the same time. Like we don't ever sort of, today I'm 80% justified and 20% center and tomorrow I hope to be 82.4. You know, that's not how we imagine ourselves at all. So yeah, we're going to make idols instead of true theology. Then this is a whole other podcast. What are the checks and balances to that? One of them is you have lots of voices in the conversation. So you're broadening what people's sense of the revelation of God is. Another would be, where is it written? That is, if we think that the Old and New Testaments are the received word of God, then can we tie what we're thinking about God into those documents or not? I, I need a third because of the rule of three, and I only have two. But yeah, you're, you're right. We are, if we're constructing theology, we're going to construct it as sinners would, which means in ways that are flawed. Paul had a nice way of talking about it, right? We see through a glass darkly. Uh, that's a little bit better yeah. than saying I'm a sinner, even as I try to be a theologian, but both are true. So we are heading into the point where we typically try to wind down things, and we've already lost Garrett to time. He apparently decided he had better things to do and just left us. I'm sure we can say that. that, Or he has a job that he has less control over his schedule than we do. Whichever. You know, what might be kinder? Right. He could actually have real work to do. (laughs) So on that note, Brian, what is bringing you joy right now other than that sweet comeback from Mary? (laughs) So one of my like big projects recently on our district has been to work out ways for clergy who are part of our little district of the United Methodist Church trying to figure out how we can better care for one another and support one another through the pandemic because we have not been able to take adequate rest and like Mm. vacations and things like that due to pandemic pressures and things like that. And so one of the ideas that I came up with, it was a shared summer sermon series where different clergy and churches could opt in to having a series of sermons together and in a very Methodist way where 
We're going back to John Wesley sermons, just like they did in the old days. And we are recontextualizing those sermons for a 21st century Tidewater, Virginia audience. And it's 10 weeks long and we have eight of the weeks full. And in the last two days, like that's where six of the weeks came from. We're almost there and I'm so excited for it. And we have a goal personally to be able to offer every pastor on our district, that's 65 pastors, two weeks of vacation where, where everything is covered for them. And we are almost there and I can see it. It's been a real struggle this year. We've talked about that a lot. But it seems like we're on the break of being able to give people a significant respite from, you know, kind of pandemic pressures. So I'm excited about that. Well, that's good, Brian. That's really great when things start to come together. Mary, what about you? What's bringing you joy right now? What's giving you life or at least just getting you through the day? I am, uh, for the first time since the lockdown, able to feed people in my home. I cook for recreation. I love to cook. I love to have people in my house. I like to entertain my husband and I. He has like a 12 person limit on people. He'll say, Can, could we just have eight this time? Or could we just have 12? I like to inter- you know, invite the whole seminary over for, for a picnic or something. Uh, but we do this together. And last week I was able to have the faculty come for dinner. We were at a a retreat together near our home in Western North Carolina. And I I got to have 12 people in my house. And that just seems like a miracle given the the last year and a half. And next week, I'm meeting some new people who have little kids and they're coming. And so I get to obsess over whether they'll eat hot dogs or or mac and cheese or what I should make. And that just seems like brand new life after the pandemic. There's a lot of joy there. Yeah, just about what an about hour you, John? ago. Oh, well, I was going to say just about an hour ago, I said to Sarah that, you know, I know we've probably, we, we've been complaining about having all this stuff on our schedule. And then the next thing I said to her was, well, I'm really looking forward to hosting a bunch of people in this new house when we move, if it's a good time to do so <laughs> and and start to throw yeah. some parties again. Yeah. People yeah. together. So yep. Obviously, <laughs> it just, it's a, I think that's one of those times where it's just, it's going to be a yeah. wonderful season to be able to do that kind of stuff. I will say my moment of joy this week, and I, we keep saying Ted Lasso, but I need to endorse that one, one more time. It's, it's the best show of the year. And also I need to say that moment of joy is not Ted Lasso anymore. It's Ted Lasso references. We've officially hit the point where we are making routine references in our lives to various jokes and things. And it's just such a pleasure to have a new sort of sphere of popular culture to make references to it feels that's where for me it feels like we're coming out of the pandemic is that is that we've started to acquire this shared language and knowledge with our group of friends but i do have to ask one more thing mary where can people find you if they want to find out more about what you're doing what you've written or what's going on with ltss yeah so i want to say that in august august 1st we are rolling out a new website which will actually make it easier to find me but for right now l r.edu that's like lenoreryan.edu slash ltss is our homepage and you can find contact information for me there i admire your uh your podcasting i don't know that i'll get to that but i have visions of returning to a blog that i used to write on new testament text so if and when i do that you can find the link through uh, the ltss website wonderful well thank you so much for joining us today it's been a really great time and you know we'd love to have you back for that part two about i i don't even know how to sum all of that up but there is a part two here there's always how you more- know your how you know your constructed theology is true or closer <laughs> to yes. true than to false yeah yeah There's always more conversations to be had, but thank you so much for joining us. If you have stayed with us all the way to the end of this podcast, I'm just going to bug you one more time and say, go likes, go subscribe things, go share things. Give us those really, really wonderful five-star ratings where appropriate. We really appreciate them and have a wonderful week.
Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logosish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at logosishpod, along with all various other kinds of social media. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast that helps us get the word out about all the stuff that we're working on, and we'd love, love to hear feedback as well. Have a wonderful week.